Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, enable us, O Lord, to hear your word this day, to receive the strong words of Amos, to receive the strong words of St. Paul, and to receive the beauty of Matthew's gospel, revealing to us the work of Jesus as he ministered here on this earth. Let us hear his call. Let us respond to that call. And let us be renewed in heart, mind, and soul that we would do all that you desire of us and send us forth to do. All of this we ask through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as church was getting ready to get started as we were about to start worship, I kept sitting there thinking like, what have I forgotten today? Or now I forgot to get the big Bible that I read the gospel from before church so that I would have it and could just walk straight up and do it. So I always, there's always something to remind me of humility to be, it's all right if things are not perfect as you lead worship. The point is for us to see Jesus, to be drawn near to Jesus. And in thinking about Jesus in that way as our Messiah, as our renewer, our redeemer, the one who restores us from that place of sinfulness. I've always thought of, G of Superman in many ways in that way. When you watch a lot of the Superman movies, I love Superman. He's one of my favorite superheroes, even if everyone feels like he's way overpowered and can just do whatever he wants. But there's always been something unique about him that drew me in. I think that it had something to do with just that simplicity of what he's trying to do. That he's using all of these gifts, all of these powers to do good, to create good, to inspire, to draw people in a sense toward himself in order that they might see what he does and be encouraged to pursue a different way of living. In many movies, they often emphasize that as kind of a messianic sense to, G to Superman, that he's a messiah of sorts. And I guess that's not necessarily incorrect, but I think then we start, as we think about him being some type of messianic figure, start comparing him too much to Jesus. Because after all, he does fail that test. He is not God incarnate. All of us fail that test. No matter how good we are, no matter how great a character may be in a book, they will fail that test. They can point us toward Jesus, and I think Superman does that in many ways, pointing us toward the greater need that we have, that greater ideal. But I was listening to a reviewer of a, one of the recent Superman shows, and he pointed out something that I'd thought about at times but hadn't quite put together that in actuality Superman is kind of the ideal Christian and a lot of that is based upon just simply the idea of where does Superman's strength come from where does his power come from where does all these gifts he has come from it comes from light it comes from the sunlight powering his alien body enabling him to do these great feats and these great acts but in order to have those gifts and so that he can accomplish the work that he knows he must do, he must draw near the light. He must draw near to the light in order to gain strength for all he has been called to do. And I just heard that and I'm like, oh, oh, how, how would I never put that together like that before? 
that Superman is unable to do what he does because he draws near to the light. He knows that he can't do it until he draws near to the light and receives that strength that his body needs. And in a similar way for us, we must draw near to the light because Jesus is the very light that we must draw near. He is the light that we need. And we can draw near to his light because he has drawn near to us and drives out the darkness. And he draws near to bring us out of darkness. So Jesus does two things as he acts as our light. He drives away the darkness, but he also brings us out of that darkness. And that's important for us to think about in what Matthew is saying today, that Jesus is the light. For we begin here in chapter 4, verse 12, about a year after Jesus was baptized. When you flip over to the Gospel of John, you hear about all kinds of things that Jesus does that none of the other Gospel writers mention. But eventually, in about chapter 4 or so, it says Jesus then left Judea and went up to Galilee. And that's where John and the other Gospel writers begin to meet in their timelines. Jesus did numerous things during that year, and some of the disciples followed him and did things with him disciples were familiar with. But here now, about a year after he has been baptized, John is cast into prison. And Jesus has been down in Judea ministering, doing great works, doing some teaching. And the people are beginning to get riled up. People are beginning to get excited. The leaders are beginning to look down on this miracle worker. And so Jesus withdraws. As one commentator made it a point of saying, if he had stayed, he would have stirred up the fervor and his time would have come before it was time. He would have stirred up the religious leaders against him too much at that time to where they would have acted to crucify him earlier than before God had planned in a sense. And so Jesus, as part of God's greater plan, spending time in Judea, then draws up to Galilee to begin the fulfilling of this prophecy that comes from the book of Isaiah, this beautiful and gracious prophecy. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of sh in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, there's a short history that I can give you about the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the sons of Israel. Their descendants settled in that northern area of Israel. And guess what that northern area became? It became the borderlands between Israel, the buffer zone between Israel and the Gentile world all around them. For every Gentile nation that invaded them, had to come from the north unless it was Egypt. Babylon, Assyria, Syria, all of them followed the trade routes and came into the northern area and came, then came down from the north. Even Babylon, they didn't drive eastward or westward to get to Jerusalem. They went up and came down to invade. And so Zebulun and Naphtali became that place that was constantly being attacked and assaulted and having to bear the brunt of all of the foreign Gentiles' attacks. And ultimately, when Assyria captured the northern kingdom, they were the first to be captured. They were the first to be driven out of the land. And so, here they are, this two pieces of land that have constantly been bombarded by the Gentile world, by the pagan world, assaulting them and attacking them carrying them away into captivity. 
and it being refilled with various Gentiles. Eventually, Jews coming to replenish that area and it becoming a Jewish and Gentile landhold, stronghold, where there's a strong mixed group of people. Another wonderful comment from William Hendrickson. He spoke of the description from 2 Kings 17.33, speaking of the Samaritans in the land of the northern kingdom that could be applied to Galilee in many ways that they feared Yahweh and served other gods. This area had a confusing history. They weren't sure who their god was at times. And so there was confusion and despondency because of all these trials and judgments. And yet, Isaiah declares the Messiah is going to minister here. The Messiah is going to come through. A great light will shine on these people. And of course, we all must realize that any time someone in the New Testament quotes something from the Old Testament, they're writing on parchment, and parchment's expensive, so they're not going to write out the whole section that they are thinking about. And just from general practice, it's always good to go back and look up whatever passage it is and look at the broader context of what is happening in the quoted verse with the rest of the verses that follow and are around it. And this is a passage about the Messiah, Isaiah 9, about how the Messiah is being raised up. I didn't mark it in my Bible, so I'm having to flip a few pages here. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We know that. You multiplied the nation. You increased its joy. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. This whole passage, I think, is in Matthew's mind as he lays the groundwork of who Jesus is by speaking of Jesus starting the main part of his ministry there in Zebulun and Naphtali. That we realize that Jesus spent most of his incarnate life in this Gentilish land, in this place that was part of Israel but yet filled with Gentiles. That after he was born, his family moved back to Nazareth and he spent most of his life there. He was raised there. Eventually he would go and do ministry down in Judea and he would come back to Galilee for another chunk of his ministry and then return eventually to Judea and go to Jerusalem. And so he ultimately spends nearly his whole incarnate life before his crucifixion in this little piece of Israel, this northern part of Israel. And so God sees fit to shine the light of the Messiah on these people and to begin to bring to fulfillment that great prophecy of the Messiah being raised up, the Son being given, the government resting on His shoulders, and Him becoming the one true King who will bring peace to us all. The great light shines on those dwelling in darkness to draw them out, to drive it away, to push that darkness out of them, and to bring them away from the darkness. That is the work of the Messiah, and He begins here in this northernmost kingdom. And what does He start to do? He begins to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He picks up where John left off. His cousin John the Baptist, that was his very ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he said. Literally, it's, if you flip back to chapter 3, and it speaks of the words of John the Baptist, it is a direct quote. 
The Greek is the same between the two. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus picks up the ministry of John and goes into the places that John has not been and carries that ministry further, accomplishing the rest of that ministry that Jesus has been preparing for. That John laid the groundwork for. He called the people to repentance, and now Jesus continues to call them into repentance, for repentance is something that we do continually. It's not a one-time action that we turn from our sins, and then, bam, we're good to go. But the entirety of our life, as Martin Luther would say, is a life of repentance. And so Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As I've said so often, repentance is that just simple turning around from what you have been doing. The forefront of it is not necessarily about feeling bad for your sins, feeling bad for what you've done, but simply turning around. And of course, changing direction is going to involve some sense of recognition that you did the wrong thing, that you went the wrong way, and so you feel sorry for that. But the word is simply about that as foundational sense of turning around. And thus, as you turn around, you begin moving forward in the new direction from the one that you had been going. And something else I was thinking about, just that with that turning around, there is involved a letting go. A letting go of what has been done, that we don't focus on the past wrong deeds, but instead we focus on the new direction that we are called to walk in. We focus on that direction of repentance, of turning from that which we once did and getting onto the path that God has placed us on. Think of it like this. If you get lost on a trail and once you realize it, you turn around, imagine continually then bemoaning your misdirection, bemoaning the fact that you did something wrong, bemoaning the fact that you took the wrong trail. You won't make much progress on the proper trail if you're constantly looking back and being like, I can't believe I went the wrong way. And so, with repentance, we turn and let go of the past. We let go of those mistakes. And we reject those mistakes because it's like, yes, that was the wrong way, but now I am reversing course and following the path that Christ has placed me on, the path that He has called me to. You see the error for what it is. And in turning, you acknowledge its wrongness. You acknowledge that it was the wrong way. And you move forward. And so we don't get bogged down in those past sins once we have repented, we must move forward. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that moving forward is probably one of the hardest parts of the Christian life when we have sins that do weigh us down. Those sins that come and pierce our conscience. And so what do we do? And we repent, and yet we still strive and struggle with just the memory of our wrongdoings. Some give the advice that we should just, oh, just forgive yourself. Forgive yourself when you're bogged down. And that's a helpful image, and it can be useful, but I think it misses the mark because we're not capable of forgiving ourselves in a lasting way. No matter how much we say, I forgive myself for doing wrong, I forgive myself for messing up, our conscience will catch up with us because it is God who will ultimately forgive us, the God above who forgives and He empowers us to turn around. That once we receive that forgiveness of God and we turn around and repent, we leave behind the old. Because I've been moved to confess it. I've been moved to embrace and follow the new path. I've been moved to receive forgiveness that comes from God alone. And so through repentance, I'm walking away from what used to be. Walking away from what was once true about me. 
and embracing that which is truly true, the new man who has been placed inside of me, that I am a truly forgiven child of God. And he turned me from my path of direction. The Father turned me from that path of wrongdoing. And now there is nothing for me to look back upon. For that life is gone, has been judged and put to death by the waters of baptism and faith. That old way has been put to death, period. And so to dwell and bemoan on those bad actions is to forget about the forgiveness, to forget about the repentance. And so we let go of it. We say, it is what is. What I have done, I have done, and now I move forward. For Christ has forgiven me. Christ has given me His very new life. And that's why we have to continually repent over and over. Because we always turn back to that wrong path. Or we turn back and look at the old things that we used to do and forget that we have been forgiven. And we'll encounter different sins over and over in our lives. And oft times we'll even encounter the same sins in new guises that catch us, up, catch us off guard. But we simply repent. We simply turn from it. We again receive the new life of Christ guiding us and leading us into where He has called us to be. We draw near because Christ has drawn near. The very kingdom is at hand. It is drawn nigh and lays hold of us and drives away the darkness. It drives me from my passive destruction. And so we return to the same well of grace over and over and over again. We return to the same forgiveness that comes from that Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world, who continually takes away the sins of the world as we turn and look to Him. We forget what lies behind and we seek for what lies before us, what lies ahead because that is what God has called us to do and that is what we do when we repent. And we pursue the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, because it is at hand, it is around us, it is ready to overtake us. And in Jesus going and preaching, he goes and walks by the Sea of Galilee and he sees Simon and Andrew, the two disciples we heard about last week in John chapter 1, that Jesus has already called them after his baptism. He has called them to begin following him. But it's an itinerant ministry. And so sometimes they're with him and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they follow him down to Jerusalem, but sometimes they stay there by the Sea of Galilee doing their work in Capernaum. And so here they are doing their work as Jesus returns back into Naphtali and Zebulun and enters into Capernaum and sets up his home there, the home base of his ministry, to begin expanding outward. For there in Capernaum, they're connected to the broader world. And they can easily travel to anywhere in Galilee and travel back into Jerusalem quickly enough when need be. And so he sees Andrew and his brother and he calls them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you ones who will go out and capture men for the sake of the gospel, capture men for the sake of God. And so they immediately left and began following him. That was something that took me years to ever notice, was that reality that they already knew Jesus. So often I would hear this preached as, oh look, Jesus is so amazing that everyone just simply follows him as soon as they see him. But they knew Jesus. They already knew him and he had been preparing them for this time that they would now become permanent followers, that they would become itinerant disciples alongside him in his itinerant ministry. And here he begins calling them away from the waters, 
calling them away from casting nets into the sea, but to cast nets upon the souls of men. And this is actually a very scary image to think about. In the Old Testament, when you hear about fishermen, when you hear about nets being cast out, it is often a sign of judgment. Rarely is there something positive happening. In Jeremiah 16, 16, God says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, and they shall catch them, my people. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. God is sending out people to draw His people back to Himself. But a couple of verses later, God goes on to say that He will not forget their sin. He will repay Israel for her sin of polluting the land with her idolatry. And so God is sending fishermen. He's sending hunters to gather people into a new exodus away from their exile. After they have endured their time of judgment for their idolatry. And so here there's a negative sense but a positive sense to that fisherman going forth and capturing people. But in other places, in Ezekiel 32 and Amos 4 and Habakkuk 1, the image of fishing is violence and judgment done by God or through the nations that He chooses, like the Babylonians. God lays hold of people and drags them into judgment. He drags them into the punishment due to them because of their sins. And here Jesus says, you are going to be fishers of men, Simon and Andrew, James and John. You are going to drag people into judgment. When you're being fished, you're about to be judged. But that judgment will lead to one death, but then after that death into a new kind of life. Because when God captures you, He judges the old, that the new might be brought forth. The new might be given good life and new life. I love that right there at the end of our reading from Amos this morning in 3.11. An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Your strongholds, those places of idolatry, those places of wickedness are going to be plundered when you are fished for by God. For He is going to grab hold of you and drag you out of that chaotic sea. And your stronghold of wickedness will be plundered as He judges you and puts you to death through the waters of baptism and brings you out of that watery death into new life, into a new way of being, into a new way of walking. This disorder and chaos of the sea that represents the Gentile world throughout the Old Testament is where these disciples are being sent. They're being sent not just to the Jewish nation, not just to Jewish people, but into the greater world, into that Gentile world to fish for men, to fish for people, to drag them in through their dragnets and with their hooks to capture them and bring them through judgment and into life. For without judgment there cannot be life. God judges sin that He would then bring us new life. That's why He calls us to repentance. For repentance is that walking through that judgment, enduring that judgment, recognizing that I am to be judged because I am a sinner, but yet I can repent and turn from those sins that are wrong and evil and have put me to death because Jesus has also died and has been raised for my life, raised into new life that I would be alive once more. And so this calling of them to be fishers of men is a dangerous battle. It's a dangerous calling into the 
far reaches of the earth. Chad Bird is summarized like this. There is a picture created here of these disciples going out into the Gentile world and fishing for men that they might be brought through that watery death of baptism and into new life through union with the Messiah. It's not an easy task that he lays on these disciples, but it is a task that has borne fruit for all of us today are here worshiping this same Jesus. All of us have been affected by the work of these early disciples who went out to be fishers of men amongst the people of earth, who went out pursuing God's people, dragging them back, went out pursuing the Gentiles, dragging them into the presence of Jesus, sending us through death and into new life. And so the fishers of men go out to capture and to bring new life, so to speak. They bring the weight of the law upon us. They call us sinners. They call us to repentance in order that through dying to that sin, we would have new life. Through recognizing that sin and turning from it, we would die in the waters of baptism over and over and over and get raised up into new life. That is what Jesus calls his disciples to do here in Matthew 4. To bring people through death that they would receive new life. And we are the recipients of that new life. We are recipients of that initial death too. For we must die daily to our sin. We must die to that old man who is put to death through baptism. And enter into that new life day in and day out. Enter into that new calling, into that new way of being that God has promised and given to us through Christ himself. And in doing that, we can then follow what Christ has said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for God is at work. He is ruling over hearts and minds by sending Jesus into this world. And so we are enabled to draw near to that light, to be changed, and to have that darkness driven out, to confess that darkness and die to that darkness and get brought out of the darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. The marvelous light of salvation is what Jesus calls us into, and that is the work of his disciples. And that is the work that he works in us day in and day out. And that then expands outward from us into all of our vocations that we participate in this very work of fishing for others, of casting nets out, of pointing people to Christ, of pointing people to their need for death to sin and their need for new life. That we are casting our nets casting the gospel out, calling people to repentance through everything that we do. And so may we be strengthened to do this work. May we be strengthened to walk through our vocations and accomplish the will of God as we are drawing near to that light and given strength. And just as I said, Superman has to draw near to that sunlight to gain his strength. We draw near to the true light, the Son of God, the Son of righteousness. We draw near to him to receive the strength we need to die to sin, to rise to life, and then to go forth and to do all the good things He has called us to do. Send us forth, O God, to do that work You have given us to do, we say in our post-communion prayer. So let us say that day in and day out. Let us cry out to the Father, send me out to do the work You have given me to do, for You have empowered me through Christ. You have given me strength. You have sent Him to slay me and to raise me to life so that I can become the new creation you have intended. 
So may we embrace this calling that God has placed upon these early disciples and then places upon us that is based on dying and rising to new life and going forth with Jesus drawn near to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.